Hello and welcome to another episode of It Depends. Today's episode is going to be about mentoring aspiring adult coders. I want to remind you every episode we have a Twitter account at Clear Function. Please reach out to us with hashtag It Depends and we'll read it and hopefully talk about it on the air and get back to you. I'm Daniel Pritchett. Brian Lankford. Good to be here today. I'm Keith Maddox. Nice to be here. All right, guys. Uh, this is one we've been bouncing around for a few weeks now. The basic premise is I'll often meet people who are adults and usually either in college or working in a desk job somewhere that's not specific or related to programming, and they've thought, oh, I want to learn to program. Many times it's I want to make a career change and become a full-time programmer. Maybe it's I want to do a startup or something, but there's some common elements in this type of aspiration. It's uh, what's your background, you know, where you're coming from, where are you going? So there's just tons of questions to go through. Uh, you guys have any thoughts before we get started? I've had the same experience a couple of times. Uh, a na- you know, whether it be a neighbor or um, someone I've kind of, you know, may have known back in when I was a, a little boy, um, might come up and ask, you know, uh, they're interested in what I do, and they make comments like, "Oh, I've thought about actually going to that field. Um, what would you What would you recommend uh, that I, how I start out? You know, what what's the what would be a good language for me to learn, or and things like that. And so, yeah, it's definitely uh, has happened a few times. I'm always pleasantly surprised um, being a freshman in college, seeing the amount of people who are undeclared majors. And they already have, they are a lot of people interested in getting into coding and programming. And they've done research, they know about languages, and it's like, which one do you think I should learn? So it's really, I've had a lot of the same experiences, and it's actually pretty encouraging to see people, at least my age, getting into the industry that I find so enjoyable. All right, that's great. So it sounds like this is a somewhat common experience for people who do program a lot. Once people find out, they want to talk about it. So first step for me is always trying to be realistic about the goals of this aspiring coder. Find out where they're coming from and where they want to be. Sometimes it's, hey, I'd like to switch jobs within a year. Or, oh, I really want to have a startup idea. I really want to build it myself. And I like to work backwards from goals to where you are now. So where you want to be, what are the requirements to really make that happen? What is the delta? Like, what do you need that you don't already have or don't already know? And... How do you go about getting it done in time? So I will occasionally meet people who have no deep computer experience, no programming experience, maybe no mid-level math experience, and they want to program. So you've got to figure out where, you know, what are they going to have to learn first to get where they're going. If it's something like, I want to be employed as a programmer within the year in Memphis, for instance, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna probably steer them away from Ruby, just because there are some shops in Memphis that do that do Ruby, but not many of them hire entry level programmers. They tend to be small consultancies that need a lot of uh, senior, maybe mid level people doing things with minimal oversight. So if you want to start programming and get a real job full time here in Memphis doing it, you might be better served with something like PHP, or if you can pull it off, something like Java. I'm hesitant to recommend Java or .NET because those tend to be big companies with HR departments. So if you happen to have a bachelor's degree in English and want to become a programmer, you can probably get past FedEx, HR. But if you don't have a college degree at all and you've been teaching yourself programming for six months, you're going to have a lot harder time with that first hurdle. So that's not specific to what you do when you're learning to program, but 
one of the first questions people always ask is, where do I start? What do I learn? Yeah, and that's interesting that you said that about Ruby because actually the advice uh, I had, a, you know, a neighbor friend, like I said earlier, uh, asked uh, this question. It was probably a couple of years ago. Um, and it was about the time that I was uh, uh, getting more familiar with Ruby and uh, working in Rails and I highly suggested him start with that. Um, but I actually, you know, didn't think about the, you know, the fact of being in Memphis, maybe the opportunity is not quite as, as there as it is for other, <clears throat> other stacks like .NET or something like that um, with, you know, bigger companies here in Memphis. So um, it is interesting uh, to think of it that way as far as, what you suggest based off of what's kind of available in your area. I think go back to what you said about goals, what's this person's goals, what are they trying to do with programming? If they're trying to get a make a career change and within the year, next two years, then yeah, language matters. But I will say that languages like Ruby, um, maybe this is kind of the argument for BB.net a couple of years back, the fact that it was easier for people to get into the world of programming. And I think that that's a really important step, just getting that first language under your belt and understanding the things that go into programming, the getting your mind to think in that way. Um, depending on your goals, the language might not be as important. But like I said, if you're an adult mm -hmm. who's trying to move cities or completely change the career field, then you're under a light, uh, much tighter constraint there about what you can start off doing. Yeah, I'd say the most freedom you could have in this situation would be, say, you're 25, you don't have much debt, you don't have any dependents, you're willing to move to any city in the U.S., and you already have a degree in something. Then you can pretty much pick a code school at random, pick a city, and say, I'm going to master Rails or JavaScript or iOS or whatever, and have a good shot at putting in 6 or 12 months and then finding a good job. But start peeling away some of those uh, freedoms to where maybe you have a family or a mortgage or have debt and so you or maybe have already working two part-time jobs you're not going to be able to put in six months of 60 hours a week at a paid code school yeah and I, I just feel like you know what i do um it, i mean it's it's just it's problem solving is right. what we do that's 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 you know at its i guess at its es essence maybe you could say that if that's fair um that we're we're problem solvers and so you know i'll try to sometimes just encourage the person to um Go solve a problem. Mm -hmm. um, go and find out what... I mean, it doesn't take long to think about the people you are interacting with every day, uh, whether it be, you know, um, you have a person who mows your lawn and um, they probably have a problem in their, in their sector, right? And so finding that sort of example or maybe... It, it doesn't mean that you have to deliver that to them, but just get some kind of... Find some kind of problem to work on and um, use software to solve it. And I think that's a good step, especially for someone kind of starting from maybe from scratch, mm -hmm. like maybe it doesn't exactly know a language or uh, yet or is familiar with one. But anyway, there's some thoughts there. But. Yeah, that's really useful advice for the day-to-day the -day of teaching and learning and growing as a developer. You have to, I mean, it's tempting, especially in an academic environment, to pull in a lot of theory Right. But I like to compare this to piano lessons I took in elementary school is I had a, a theory book and I had a, I forget what the other one was called, but it was playing songs with fun melodies that you actually recognize versus yeah. just playing scales. And yeah. it's tempting to give people only the right. 
the dry, boring part and not the fun part. Even though you can't necessarily get where you want to be as quickly as possible if you just do the fun stuff and only build, take the shortest path to wherever. But it's definitely worth keeping a major component of your schedule time, your exercise time, and doing things that are useful and have some real-world meaning to you. I think it, I mean, I don't know if you all would agree with this, but I, I sort of feel like actually having something to work towards mm-hmm. um, makes learning faster for me right. than, uh, like you were kind of saying, I wouldn't necessarily recommend you go off for six months and read a book on something and not do kind of do anything yeah. with it. Yeah. Like, I, I, you know, not that anybody would probably do that um, today, but, um, but uh, I just feel like I get a lot of learning out of actually just sort of, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to do it. And that helps me learn the language a whole lot or the, the ability of putting software together a whole lot quicker than kind of reading about it and sort of studying it. If that makes any sense. Yeah. I don't know, do y'all have any? I totally agree. Um, it's one of the reasons that I found, uh, for example, Michael Hartle's Rails tutorial. Um, I found that when I first learned Rails about, like, what is it, five years ago now, um, it was a lot more enjoyable and engaging for me personally because as opposed to reading a book um, or taking a class on the language like I did with Java, I was building a Twitter clone. Yeah. I was building something that I could see, building something that I could, you know, point and say, yeah, I did that. So as opposed to something where you're reading a book, you're able to get, you know, kind of understand the language and you're getting probably a lot deeper knowledge than I were from the tutorial. But from there, I was introduced to things and I was able to go off on tangents and kind of understand the ecosystem as a whole. Otherwise, on the other hand, with a book, sometimes there's a kind of a what's next feeling when you get finished with technical books. So I feel like the types of resources that you start off with can definitely have an impact on your journey into the industry. One of the biggest things for me that I like to tell people to do is get your reps in and to do one thing at a time. So personally, I'm easily distracted and I like to survey from a very high level the whole industry and find out about all the new tools and techniques out there that might be better than the ones I'm using for stuff I'm already doing. But it is not hard for the wrong personality type to get sucked into doing that with all of your available time. And you're not going to make meaningful progress unless you actually pick a single thing and put a decent amount of work into doing it hands-on. So maybe, I mean, reading one book over the course of two weeks is almost certainly going to be more effective for you than reading 50 articles over the weeks. Right? Mm-hmm. And so basically, don't bite off more than you can chew. I mean, sort of take things one at a time. And Is that kind of... Sort of. I, I, the hard part for me is that it's easy for me to read and read and read and read and think and never do any hands-on stuff. And I feel like that's productive, but... Really, at the end of six months of just reading, I don't have anything to show for it. Right. So yeah. I'm saying balance your your study and your improvement with mm. focus and practice. That's going to be something that even experienced devs can fall into. I I never really had a lot of time in the past couple of years because I'm juggling both my programming career and high school slash college now. And I, I read several articles about different things. Like, oh, that's cool. Flexbox this or, oh, Ruby 2.0 three was released and kind of stay abreast of things. But when it came to actually implementing what I was reading about, I always found myself lacking in that area because there was never any time I didn't put that same amount of time I spent reading articles into actually building something. Mm -hmm. So I think that something that not just 
people new to programming, but even uh, people who do it for their job uh, need to get a hold of is that the way you go about honing your craft and learning new skills needs to be something at least I have a component where you're actually building something and not yeah, just reading. There's definitely. a next step to take after reading about it. You have to build experience so that you can continue to build on it and get better. I mean, as far as I know, people don't learn martial arts in a classroom without right. also putting on uniforms and <laughs> right. walking through yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, uh, this may be going back a little bit, but um, I'll sometimes, you know, just kind of preference everything I say to the person by saying, you're not going to learn it all. I mean, uh, don't have expectations that you're going to, you know, to get this job that I kind of want to get to, I'm going to need to, you know, learn everything there is to know about this subject matter. And the fact is, I mean, our subject matter changes. I mean, it's every day, right? There's new tech, tech coming out. There's new ways of doing things. We're constantly, I feel like I'm constantly learning, even on the job. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I try to encourage the person to say, you know, don't put so much pressure on that you have to have all this built up knowledge before you can even get into your first, um, I guess, entry level programming job. Um, you know, uh, I, I certainly didn't. I don't, do you all have the same experience? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And also, I let people know, don't be swayed or intimidated by crazy job requirements sometimes. Um, they're not every company is culpable of this, but there are some job advertisements you'll see and they'll ask for 20 years of experience right. in this or five years of experience in this. Even for entry-level jobs, they'll ask for X amount of years of experience when, you know, I'll say it can never hurt to just apply because if you get in the room, you'll be able to, at least in my experience, I've been able to see where I'm deficient based on the interview process. Right. So that I'll be able to see the questions they ask, where I can go and improve myself afterward. And it kind of helps you keep a steady baseline of where you're growing. Hmm. So I'll just, you know, just say don't be intimidated by something and go for it. I'd like to mention anybody listening to this, we'd love to hear your stories, things you want to learn, people you've mentored. And please reach out to us anytime on Twitter at ClearFunction. And anything longer you want to talk about, use the hashtag it depends and we'll be watching it and love to hear from you. So uh example that happens fairly frequently is I'll have a friend who's young ish and working a desk job and they've decided they're gonna learn Rails because maybe they've seen us at the Memphis Ruby group or just talked to us in other forums and they want to slowly train themselves up on programming, maybe build a pet project or three could be to do something useful at work with the job they already have. Often they'll have a background in IT, like say a sysadmin or network support type job, and they're they're teaching themselves and they want to know what do I do, where do I start, what kind of timeline should I be looking at, should I be focused on learning this tech and that tech, or should I be focused on this pet project? You guys have any particular memories you want to go through on that? I was going to go back to again my uh, the recent one, which was my neighbor. Um, you know, he I think he he had had some experience with uh, with learning uh, a particular language, and actually it escapes me which one. Um, but um, so he had a little bit of uh, kind of he had done some work on his own already. So he wasn't completely starting uh, from scratch. And I think that's, you know, the, the advice I'd probably would give him would be a little different from someone who's just interested in getting into programming, like, 
and they had their job that they do today is completely not <laughs> yeah. the same. Yeah. Um, so I kind of go back to the comments I guess I made earlier, but, um, but I feel like it's, you know, it's all about problem solving and, um, I would just, you know, again, I just continue to encourage people to find a problem. Um, cause I think that's, for me, that's the easiest way to learn is to, through just having experience of doing mm-hmm. it. The problem with, um, I, I feel like the problem with just grabbing a book and just running through the examples and, and kind of being done is that I feel like the most books are, they're kind of giving you the, um, in general, the examples are more yeah. of the easy path of getting something done and okay, great. It works. But it, but if you find a problem instead that you want to work on, um, you're going to be a little bit more passionate about it, I think. And then you're going to uh, run into roadblocks and you're going to have to figure out, well, what do I do now? Yeah, I don't have yeah. a book to tell me what to do with this particular problem. I got to go find out. Right. And that is most of what I do every day is, oh, I don't know what to do here. I either need to go reach out to you guys um, <laughs> to get some help or go on the internet and look around and see if anybody else has solved this problem mm-hmm. so I can get past it. Um, I feel like it kind of forces you to do that versus just a book telling you kind of how it's supposed to do. Does that make sense? I yeah. really like that. Some of the, most of the book tutorials I've read through, they'll build some cumulative program, iterate this small piece, then the next one, then the next one. And it's 20 steps. And if you type them in one at a time, it works, assuming you don't make any typos. Sure. And that's its own right. type of frustrating debugging if you've got a typo in a program that's far beyond your right. actual skill. Yeah. But it does leave out all the wrong turns. I mean, maybe a program I finished writing has 20 modules, but I probably created 100 and threw 90 of them away and rewrote 10 of them right. and kept 10 <laughs> of them. So I wound up with 20, but it's it's not really an accurate representation of the process, just seeing the finished artifacts. Definitely. And I love looking through GitHub histories of big open source projects. You can see how a module evolves over time. So you do see some of the things that were thrown away or some of the original attempts that worked then but didn't extend in the way they needed to long-term. So, yeah, I love the idea of having beginners not just follow the happy path of somebody else's grand design. So if you, do you have an example of some, someone recently that has approached you about this question? Yeah, sure. Uh, I know a couple of friends doing this. One of them is uh, working in IT support, and he's teaching himself Rails, building some simple Rails apps, and long-term goal is a career change. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching him go through different things... <coughs> I can see that sometimes when he asks the right question of the wrong people, he'll get led astray. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I lead him astray. Uh, one thing that's really hard for an experienced developer is to remember or to think through how to scale down a real-world example to something that fits for somebody. Like, say, starting a new Rails project. I think if you build a new Rails project today, the generator is going to have views in SQLite. Yes. And you're going to be running it on your dev machine. If sure. you ask enough developers, they'll say, oh, well, you should put it on Heroku and use Postgres and set up continuous integration in a test suite. And that's all true long term for a professionally managed Rails app of a certain size. But right there, that's five, ten things for the person to figure out. Right. And can be a little overwhelming. Yeah. And I do want to push people to get something on a public website like, say, Heroku quickly early on in their process don't wait to the end to do it because it turns out there's a lot of things that you'll have to undo and relearn if you're building it in isolation 
Right. Plus, if it's public, then that it does make it a little bit harder up right. front, but it also means that, let's say you publish it to Heroku and you put it on GitHub, anybody you know who's into Rails will be able to consume that and help you. Whereas if you say, I've got this one database that I figured out through trial and error over the course of a weekend, and this one app that's never left my machine, if you start asking your friends frustrated questions on what to do, it's going to be really hard for them to debug it remotely because they're basically having to imagine how they would have done it if they were you and they're not doing it like you because they've got orders of magnitude more experience sure. how, how do you feel about uh when like i just thought of this bringing up source control like I, that might be the first thing i might if someone inexperienced i might say learn source control learn yeah. learn git or whatever you know and then and then go from there. I don't know. I, I'm just sort of thinking out loud there about... I always try to have people learning as few things at a time as possible. Right. I don't know if I do source control on day one. And if when I did do it, I'd probably recommend one of the GUI clients like GitHub for Mac or whatever. Personally, I just use the command line clients. But for someone who's trying to... like, You want them to use source control because it can help their process. Like I know as a beginner... You get stuck if you spend too much time building something, it works. And we mentioned this on a recent podcast. You'll have something working. You'll keep going and you'll break it and you won't be able to get back to where you were before. So you're somehow, in a sense, you're worse than where you were three hours ago before you broke it. And if you don't know source control, you're not necessarily going to be lucky hitting undo 407 times and finding the right spot. So, yes, work with them to get it under source control, but no, don't force it on them in the first five minutes. Mm -hmm. I just thought of another example of someone in my life I taught to code and it's a little different example than what we've been generally talking about but I think it's has it plays a shows a point um a couple years ago I tried to teach my start teaching my mom how to code uh she's a stem teacher at a high school at a middle school actually sorry in uh, Arlington here in the Memphis area and um she's trying to teach her expose her kids to children to coding and what I learned through that process and you now I started you know, this, you know, maybe, you know, learn this language here in the traditional role. But I learned that not everybody starts from the same computer exposure. Right. Um, some people who are more inclined, aren't inclined as, aren't as inclined to like logical thinking or problem solving may need, like you were talking about earlier, more exercises in problem solving. I personally uh, took my mom to Code, Ca- to Code Academy and had her um, start doing exercises um, on there just to kind of show her mind how things kind of work for loops, if conditional statements, things like that. And those are things that you can teach to um, you can teach to kids. And I w- she's not trying to make a career change, but I was able to give her just enough to be able to do that. So sometimes there are going to be people, for instance, if I'm if an English major at my college trying to learn how to code, and they're not great with computers in general. Popping up a, you know, text edit and showing them how to write a quick, I don't know, Python program isn't probably going to be the best avenue to teach them. First thing would probably be the familiarity with their computer. Um, so just knowing where, where your, I guess, your audience, who your audience, audience yeah, is. know who your audience is and where they're starting from um, is, I guess, the first step in teaching somebody to code. I really like that example and. The reason I do is because teaching someone computing from the ground up sounds very time intensive. And aside from one's parents, there's not many people 
I'm going to invest that level <laughs> of effort into. Maybe if I'm if I'm set up in some sort of formal mentoring programming where I'm meeting kids or elderly or whatever a few hours a week, then yeah. But if you just have a friend who wants to be an iOS developer and they've never opened a command line tool or never programmed or done mid-level math, I'll be really skeptical about them having the motivation and engagement to get it going and keep Mm -hmm. it going long-term and me having the resources to push it. I mean, I might help somebody dial back their aspirations to let's start with the fundamentals. Like you need to be able to, I don't know, master downloading and installing and uninstalling and managing your files at a simple OS level. Understanding what happens between like the whole client server interaction, Mm -hmm. understanding that that shortcut on your desktop isn't the application file itself, just things like that. Helping people become familiar with their machine more so, you know, we're in an era now where you'd think people are more, they interact with more of the computers than they do, but there's still sometimes a layer missing of as to what's actually going on. Um, and helping people get past that initial hurdle a lot of times is the first step to programming that next level. This just came to my mind. I was uh, back to my neighbor. Um, one of the things he asked um, to do was uh, I, at the at the time I was working from home uh, pretty much uh, most of the time during the week, and uh, one of the things he had asked was, "Would you mind if I came over and just um, just watched you, you know?" Um, put, put, you know, uh, solve a problem or whatever mm-hmm. in, in code. And I thought that was kind of interesting that he wanted to, wanted to spend the time to do that. And so we did, uh, we spent, um, probably a couple hours, uh, I had him over and just showed, I just showed him around, you know, the computer a little bit. Okay. This is what we're, this is what I'm using. Um, and this is what I'm programming in and here's source control. And so I just kind of gave him a quick sort of, and this is what I, this is sort of what we do during the week or during the, I sort of described for him, you know, what my day typically looks like on, uh, doing programming. So it's just kind of an interesting, um, thought too there. If, if someone asks, you know, and if they're real serious, you know, that might be beneficial to them to see, look, what does it look like each day? You know, absolutely. That's a huge tool. I know a couple of times I've watched screencasts from veteran programmers, whether they just have more experience than me or particularly more skill in a domain that I'm just not big in, seeing somebody else doing the work, maybe even to the point of watching the keyboard, definitely watching the screen, yeah, right. is really instructive. I mean, there's a big difference between reading a tutorial or looking at source code and watching a master Someone practitioner at work. Yeah, there's right. just little things and ways they think about things, questions they ask themselves, the way they structure their workflow. That's all really neat. You can right now go to watch live coding sessions which is a really exciting thing uh for the right person it's exciting as a learning tool um i think twitch tv has a lot of them for game jams people have weekend programming competitions right and uh there are some people who are programming major open source projects will occasionally screencast their sessions that's a really interesting thing to take advantage of that wasn't really there when i first started programming uh, one thing I thought of earlier, we talked a good bit about starting Rails and what you'd tell somebody if that was a reasonable goal. But what about some niches where someone wants to learn some programming, but Rails is really not close to the top of the list of things that would help them with their immediate needs? I mm-hmm. thought through it earlier, and I thought, so if you're 
working at a desk job and a business, doing some back office stuff like finance or accounting. Maybe you've already got some skills with Excel, but you want to take it a step beyond that and start automating things. I wouldn't suggest Rails as the best yeah. fit there. I'd probably say Python and building out from there. There's lots of stuff for tabular data and minor web apps and analysis. If someone's really wants to customize some web pages just to make them look pretty or do some snappy stuff, they may be more or better served with some CSS and JavaScript training than uh, doing and learning right. a whole yeah. web app. And if somebody really, really wants to make iPhone apps, for instance, you're probably going to want to talk them through Swift and not putting a Rails app into a container and using Cordova. Mm-hmm. Game dev is popular among people that I've seen just being in high school and college. And it's always interesting to hear somebody say, oh, I want to learn how to make games. And I kind of have to stop and think, okay, how can I best... Because there are a lot of things with games, usually see C++ or C Sharp or with Unity or something like that, and there are so many things that go into doing that. So sometimes somebody comes to you with a problem that's very complex and mm-hmm. takes you to, makes you pull from a lot of different wells of knowledge. And so that's where you go back to having, okay, make sure you know some physics and some math, if we're, if we're talking about the game example, physics and math, and... Um, start them off at a lower level, maybe with C, or you may go inter- go um, more gradual if they have time, and go okay. Let's start with maybe some Java, then take it down a step to C or C plus plus, and kind of gradually introduce them to their end goal. Again, realistic expectations. Yeah, I mean, wasn't Minecraft built with Java? I, I think you can start there mm. and stay there if you want to make games. That that's a billion dollar game, and I'm sure people can give you a whole list of reasons that. Most big budget games are written in C++ and not Java, but it can be done. A couple points I like to focus on when helping somebody with the day-to-day of training is to take their sample project, if they've come up with one, and make it real. And again, that's back to, if it's a web app, get it published where other people can use it and find some clients, not necessarily someone who's paying you, but if you can, that's great. But find other people who are outside of your head who can use it and give you feedback and say, oh, I don't understand this part or... I keep getting stuck here. It would be great if I could do that. That'll give you that'll give you a better way to source new ideas and prioritize where you're going next. So get it out there, whether it's publishing your game or your web app or having somebody use your desktop tool. Get other people using it. And the process of launching it, that's near and dear to me, is anytime you're working on a project in isolation, you it's natural to underestimate the amount of effort required to launch it. So you may have months of work in on something that only runs on your machine and not realize that there's another six weeks of work left to get it packaged so that other people can consume it. So I always like to follow the extreme programming philosophy and get the whole thing built and out there as quickly as possible and then just iterate on top of that, start adding features or screens or designs. So that's huge for me because it's all aimed around really tight feedback loops. You can, mm-hmm. the more you can have a small session where you accomplish something meaningful, the better positive mental rewards you're getting. Dopamine, I guess you you did something. It's great. Right. You're happy. You want to yeah. go back and do it again. Right. So give yourself a feedback loop, set it up, get it in front of other people so that you can see success and failure so you can learn from it. How about the open source projects? Would you ever recommend Hey, um, you know, GitHub, there's a lot of GitHub projects out there. Go find one that you could 
you know, once you get a little more experience, you yeah. could, you could dive into. Would you recommend even before that? Some... I'd say just go open to open source projects and read the code. That was one of the things that helped me because some of the th- you get some of those intangibles. Mm-hmm. Understand why people are doing because, like you said, you can see the history of how that file was changed. You can see the conversations happening in the GitHub issues. Mm-hmm. Open source is a very useful tool when learning programming because you don't just get the how to make one plus one equals two. You get how is the best way to make one plus one equals two as a, and also why decisions were made concerning the environment and all those different things. Yeah, I, I agree with that in terms of using it as a research and training tool. I think what what I heard in Brian's question was when or should someone get into contributing to open source? I would say that if you're very, very new, it's unlikely you're going to find something that you can contribute to at a high level and enjoy. There are projects that make it a high priority to find things that are accessible to new people and package them and rather than doing the work, they'll put it out there mm. and say, this is something I think someone with less experience in this project than me could do, and maybe that will engage them. That's almost like a marketing tactic for your dev team. Is, sure. Right. And that could be as simple as doc- documentation or screenshots. You could say, we've got this project that we use a lot, and maybe I'm building new features or doing architecture, but I know for a fact that the documentation on how to deploy it to Heroku or AWS is lacking that'd be something you can make a GitHub issue on and say, and you, the projects will tag it as new developer friendly. So sure. if you're, again, you'll probably want a mentor to help you get there, but it's possible that what you're looking at as your primary development growth interest does have a project out there that sort of overlaps your interests and your needs and you can find a place to do it. It's definitely better to look for things that you're already interested in project wise. Like if there's, a project you use all the time, whether it's software or a library, or whether it's an application or a library, you're going to want to look for those to see if you can contribute back to the stuff you already use. I know that in the course of my professional uh, life, I do occasionally contribute back to frameworks and libraries that I'm using just because I was building something for a client and this off-the-shelf code did 80% of what I needed. Mm. And then I thought it through and I had to build the other 20% by hand so that I could meet the client's needs and get paid. But then I realized that 20% was something that might be useful for me again and for the broader community. So that's good, but I don't expect to see that in someone's first month of programming. What do you guys think about exposing new programmers to the soft skills needed in the industry? So things like checking your email all the time though somebody at the desktop may already do that but um communication being able to talk about what you're doing in code and communicate that to somebody more on the business side of things exposing them to all the little nooks and crannies of the industry i'd say that really depends on where they're going with it professionally if mm-hmm. someone wants to be a full-time programmer then yeah you might want to learn about scrum or agile development or what project managers are or how to operate on a team with four other people sharing your code base. But if you're doing this just because you want to know or you want to be able to build something on your own, I wouldn't worry about that too much. Honestly, I think training someone on focus and solving their own problems is more important. Like, I would maybe suggest they learn to not check their email if they (laughs) want to learn to program. That's right. I I was thinking of, again, back to... uh, (laughs) bringing up my neighbor again. Um, you know, I think he got a little bit of that exposure when he came over mm-hmm. and kind of watched me work for a few hours because 
that's where the soft skills come in. I'm, I'm having to interact with other people on the team and I'm checking code into source control. And so, you know, just, um, uh, some of that, um, I think he got a little exposure to mm-hmm. just experience of being there and watching it happen. Yeah. So, um, but it is important. And I, you know, it, it eventually when they get, if their if their goal is kind of like Daniel said, it probably just depends on where they want to go. But if they want to get, you know, get into the industry and actually have a job as a programmer, the, it's more than likely they're going to be working on a team more than likely. And so, um, they are going to, you know, have, have a need for those skills too. So I'd like to get a bell. And the next time somebody says it depends, I'm going to ding it. <laughs> right. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So idea I just had listening to Brian, we all work here at clear function, which is owned by a couple of people and they have a portfolio of software companies. And it's always fascinating to me where we, the company will acquire apps. Someone will build a piece of software. It's often a small team or even a single person. And it's really neat to think about the style of work and the background that leads someone to build a small online software program or online service and then flip it to another owner. So the types of workflow and coding practices that lead you to that direction where maybe you're going to spend six months building something or two years, get it out there, get a little bit of traction, then sell it to somebody else and go on your next idea. Code written by that person is going to look almost nothing like code written by a three-person dev team. Like here at Clear Function, we recently released a, a donation platform, and we have all been very careful about doing code reviews and testing and a build server and this type of architecture. And there's a lot of thoughts and important practices in getting a team of five plus people building something, sharing the code, cranking out new features at a certain level of velocity. It just doesn't resemble what you see at all for one person working in isolation who's just trying to get a product to market, get some traction, and then decide where to go from there. Right. We we basically presuppose some traction and focused on having a minimum level of engineering discipline that's not necessary or even appropriate for a more speculative one person app. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely. You guys have any thoughts on what that looks like for yeah. different things um, you worked on? Yeah, for so for instance when I was starting out, one of the big things or I guess it's still a big thing, but it was really really um out there at the time was test driven development. And for me trying to build something that you know i may have had this little startup idea at the time that obviously didn't go anywhere but it was my little idea and um i knew that tests were important you want to be able to make sure your code is consistent and that can it can run uh, and that new changes don't break anything but there's a lot of people a lot of schools of thought that think that for every model every module that you have you have to have a test for it and if your primary goal is to get this certain product to market and to make money off of it, having a full-blown test suite with a CI server might not necessarily be in your best interest, like you were saying, Daniel, um, in terms of knowing what your goals are. Sure, yeah. Uh point I tried to make in a meeting yesterday was that if you cut all of the corners on a project in the interest of time, you'll never finish it. So I don't know if I'd recommend not testing at all oh no i will say that the balance of what you test and how much definitely changes depending on your timelines and your budgets yeah 
But yeah, I can see that for sure. Yeah, I was just saying that us at Clear Function are going to probably test a lot more than somebody trying to write their one person right. app. One last time, I want to remind everybody, we've got a Twitter account. Please reach out to us at Clear Function. Any tweets that have the hashtag, it depends, we'll pick them up and hopefully get to talk about them on the show. So thank you, everybody. And have a great day. You've been listening to It Depends, a podcast by Clear Function. Clear Function is a group of happy engineers based in Memphis, Tennessee. We partner with visionaries to bring their ideas to life. For more information, check out our website at clearfunction.com.